0: Is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello, good to have you along this Monday afternoon. Michelle Stanley with you. There's a lot of talk these days about electric vehicles, mainly passenger cars. A few weeks ago you did hear about a trial of an electric farm buggy. But what about electric tractors? They may be closer than you think for the horticulture
1: sector. Anything from spraying to mowing um, and other maintenance tasks. So we feel a battery electric solution will work really well in terms of delivering um, greater efficiencies and the technology uh, to support productivity um, without having to compromise on size.
0: You'll hear all about that later this hour. Also, did you catch the Golden Guitar Awards over the weekend?
2: for the star of the show. She would have to be the youngest to win a Golden Guitar Award. she she
3: wrote
4: this
0: song. Congratulations. Can you continue tiptoe? Thank you. Tiggy Eckersley is indeed the youngest to win a Golden Guitar Award. You'll get a wrap of all of the action before half past one. And if you'd like to get in touch with the Country Hour today, it's always great to hear from you. You can text 0487 991057. First up this afternoon, though, the gas industry's peak body says licences to begin fracking in the Northern Territory could be issued in a month despite the government missing a key deadline. The NT government had repeatedly claimed it would implement all 135 recommendations of the Pepper Inquiry by the end of 2022, paving the way for industry to ramp up production in the Beetaloo Basin. But critics and environment groups say the recommendations are impossible to enact And have raised concerns the NT government is caving to pressure from the oil and gas industry. Max Rowley has more.
5: It's a crucial step for the fracking industry to ramp up production in the Northern Territory's Beedaloo Basin. While a number of gas companies have exploration permits in the Beedaloo, the government has promised to implement all 135 recommendations from the Pepper Inquiry before production licences are issued. The inquiry's recommendations are intended to mitigate the risks associated with any onshore shale gas development, and the government had repeatedly claimed it would finish implementing them by the end of 2022. That deadline has passed, and according to the government's own reporting, 35 of the recommendations are yet to be completed. Research director of the Australia Institute, Rod Campbell, says it's unsurprising the government has missed its own deadline.
6: It's pretty clear that The government hasn't been able to implement all of those recommendations, uh, in part because at least one or two of them are impossible. So, missing the deadline is probably not a big deal when what you were trying to do is in fact very hard or impossible to do.
5: What do you think is impossible? Uh, Which recommendations do you think are are holding this up?
6: I I think the clearest example is recommendation 9.8, that there should be no net increase in greenhouse gas emissions the government commissioned a report from the gas industry backed research outfit Gisera more than a year and a half ago the report the reports more than a year late uh, and that's the report that's basically saying investigating is it possible and how can you have a gas industry without a massive increase in greenhouse gas emissions and it's pretty clear that they haven't been able to Work out a way to do that. And really, what the government should be doing is coming out and saying, we can't meet this recommendation, and therefore a Northern Territory gas industry shouldn't go ahead.
5: But NT Environment Minister Lauren Moss says the government is now finalising the remaining recommendations.
0: So there's a huge body of work involved in the implementation of the 135 recommendations of the PEPA inquiry the government has been putting all of that work into place over a significant length of time and now it has to be pulled together for cabinet to consider there is obviously an overseer in dr david ritchie he was a member of the original pepper inquiry panel and he will also provide his advice about the implementation of those recommendations so the work's been done needs
7: to be considered by government in terms of whether that's now implemented at the level that we expect before moving to production
5: Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association NT Director David Slama says he's expecting the recommendations to be fully implemented within the next four weeks.
8: Assuming that after that, the green light is turned on, that should give existing gas explorers the opportunity to apply for production licences. I'm very much expecting several production licences to be issued. We are the industry's very keen and certainly um, Australia as a whole needs Beetaloo to help with its
5: en- energy security. A key recommendation of the inquiry is to ensure no net increase in Australia's emissions from fracking in the Territory. Now, critics say this is impossible. What gives you the confidence that can be achieved?
8: That's a good question. And, um That is very much achievable. Uh, If you look at the technologies that have come to the table in recent years, the advancements in carbon capture, uh, what uh, the carbon capture hub, the potential middle arm development for um, the utilisation of carbon capture storage and facilitating carbon capture in in a critical process of delivering a cleaner gas will will give that is one example that is one tool that the industry can use there are obviously there's a mix of other suites and a mix and mix of other tools that they can use but the carbon capture piece is, is a is, is a critical one
5: but there are doubts carbon capture and storage technology is up to the task And a December report from David Ritchie, the bureaucrat tasked with overseeing the government's implementation of the inquiry's recommendations, said the details of how Betaloo emissions would be offset were still being worked out. Rod Campbell says there's a rush to production for fossil fuel projects around the country.
6: Gas companies have a massive incentive to set up as much infrastructure uh, and get as much done as they can before climate regulations and cl- climate policy start to bite and um, that's, yeah, that's what you're saying Australia-wide is as many coal and gas companies as possibly can are trying to get their projects as developed as possible before climate policies and renewable energies start to seriously eat into those markets.
5: But David Slama says the industry isn't taking any shortcuts.
8: The industry is ready, there is no doubt, because they've been working with government for the last four years around the practical delivery of this. So um, bearing that in mind, um, you know, there's no such thing as making it happen quickly. It's about getting it right.
5: Rod Campbell says even if the government could find a way to implement all of the Pepper Inquiry recommendations, fracking shouldn't go ahead.
6: You don't need to uh look very far to find the answer to that question you've got the the un the international energy agency all kinds of uh very authoritative organizations saying the world does not need new gas uh or fossil fuel projects um so no a fracking industry in the northern territory is a fundamentally bad idea
0: that report from Max Rowley. You can read more about that story on the ABC Rural website. Just put into your search engine, ABC Rural, Beetaloo and fracking. It's 19 to 1.
9: The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
0: Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. And as you heard at the start of the show, the Golden Guitar Awards announced its youngest ever winner at the weekend, Tiggy Eckersley. She's the daughter of Brooke McClymont and Adam Eckersley. And she took home the trophy for co writing Song of the Year. The song of the year was Star of the Show, uh, written by Tiggy, Brooke McClymont, uh, Adam Eckersley and Dan Biederman. You'll hear a little bit more about the Golden Guitar Awards a little bit later in today's Country Hour, but let's hear that song of the year. This is Star of the Show. Brooke McClymont with Adam Eckersley. The song is star of the show and it took out song of the year at this year's Golden Guitars. Later on in the program, you'll hear from Brooke and Adam about how their daughter Tiggy co-wrote the song and then became the youngest ever Golden Guitar winner. That coming up for you before half past one. (laughs)
5: nominations are now open for farmer of the year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land let's recognize the hard work of our rural leaders innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond you can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au proudly supported by the kandinen group and abc rural
0: Hi, I'm Linda Ford
4: from Twin Hill Station on the Finnis River floodplain, and you're listening to The Country Hour.
0: Quarter to one this afternoon, Michelle Stanley along. Good to have your company. The demise of the $35 billion renewable energy export project... Sun Cable has drawn plenty of attention. Much of it has focused on the bust-up between billionaire owners Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks. But a top energy expert says it also holds important lessons for green energy megaprojects across the world. Dylan McConnell is a senior research associate at the University of New South Wales. He says exporting renewable energy overseas Will be a massive technical and economic challenge.
10: They're sort of more like an export play. They're you know quite speculative. And, you know it's 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 almost like a mining project, but it just happens to be energy. Um, I think there's there's challenges that are facing the sector. This is relevant for Australia. You know, in the the broader transition in general, is the Americans have just, or you know, a couple of months ago introduced the Inflation Reduction Act, which is. Um, you know that's going to drive a lot of capital into America, and they're, they're they're going to be a you know a potentially the the place people go to to do things like big hydrogen projects. And in sort of response to that, just overnight, I see the European Union has um, announced a green deal investment plan or something like that. This is a direct retaliation or response or however you want to think about it to the to the ira um and you know sort of like us they sort of like where does that leave australia it's a bit outside of my wheelhouse but i have actually seen a few you know hydrogen roadmaps for various countries and they kind of look very similar to each other um you know the the iberian peninsula one looks pretty similar to the australian one and it's a hell of a lot closer to european union there's plans and projects all over the world, and where Australia is and is not competitive in in that, remains to be seen. It'll be interesting to watch. And what about Sun Cable in particular? I mean, (coughs) like Sun Cable was centred on a giant subsea cable. Do you think that was its Achilles heel in many ways? Yeah, I I think that this is being reported now, but I I sort of always suspected that one of the the differences might be between how Twiggy and and how Mike and Brooks want to approach the export question because Twiggy is very much in that um, in the hydrogen space and, you know, big on sorry, green ammonium and hydrogen exports and so on. And whereas the project is, you know, an electricity cable, which is Mike kind Cannon-Brooks of has been quite in favour of. And I think I saw some comments basically that, that this is point of difference strategic I think Twiggy wants to to pivot the project to just to make hydrogen um, whereas Mike and Brooks wants to keep it as a a cable that exports to to Singapore and so I think that is actually one of the key challenges it's certainly the most uncertain has the most technology risk as far as I understand and um, it's a certainly very ambitious undertaking I don't really know much about that but um, I can't compare it to what I know in NEM and you have a look at something like Marin link which is um it's a 250 kilometer cable which is about 17 times shorter it's you know through the bass Strait, which is about 50 to 60 meters um it's within the same country and it's still got a bit of an uphill battle in front of it and it's probably going to cost three billion dollars and it's um also you know who pays for it's still a bit of an open question and and it's you know Half the capacity, or even less than half the capacity, it's 1.5, and they're going to build that, you know, from 2028. 20, and you look at what, you look at that compared to Sun Cable, and you just go, these these don't make These not These are not consistent with each other, right? When Basslink had a fault in the cable, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, it took them six months to find and rectify yeah. it. It's yeah. relatively shallow. It's a short cable, uh, and it's within our jurisdiction. If something goes wrong with the Sun Cable link, it could be years. The sort of related point to that is the energy security question. Um, Like that's a huge energy security risk. Now, you know, we've seen maybe that's not an issue. I don't know. But we've seen what a pipeline to Russia means. And if you think the energy security of a pipeline is hard to manage, you know, an electricity cable is an, an order of magnitude more.
0: University of New South Wales energy expert Dylan McConnell. He was speaking with ABC's energy reporter Daniel Mercer. Late on Friday, the administrators of Sun Cable accepted a $65 million funding proposal from Mike Cannon Brooks' company Grok Ventures. So that money would provide Sun Cable funds for the next six months for things like rent and wages, while it searched for a new owner. Continues. 10 to 1. An Australian based startup company has caught the eye of Bill Gates. The billionaire's breakthrough energy venture is investing in Ruminate, a Perth company, which is working on a pharmaceutical product that claims it drastically reduces methane emissions from livestock. David Messina is the CEO of Ruminate. He says the cash injection will get its synthetic anti-methane supplement to market much quicker than initially planned.
9: What it enables us to do is progress our our trials and registrations right around the world now and at the same time actually start uh, working on a pilot production plant. So prior to this injection, we would have been looking at doing those sequentially But um, with this injection and and the validation of uh, our technology, we're now able to progress both of those things simultaneously, which, of course, uh, means we'll be able to get our product to market much quicker. And
7: how much is the Breakthrough Energy Ventures investing in the technology, David?
9: Uh, Look, they've come in as uh, they led this uh, second seed round, which was uh, we raised US $12 million. And by leading that, they were the the single largest contributor within that funding round, and that took the total amount that we raised through our two seed rounds to, in in Australian dollar terms, about twenty five million. So, it has been a um, you know for for us and as a small starter, uh, a significant portion of that.
7: Yeah, I mean twenty five million dollars to me is a hell of a lot of money, Uh, don't get me wrong. But when we're talking about Bill Gates, I mean, is that a a kind of a drop in the ocean in terms of uh, support or a backing of a venture like this?
9: Oh, 100%. Uh, You know, from from that perspective, very immaterial. But what comes with that and more importantly than than the actual money itself is the validation that our technology uh, is working very well um, obviously, they undertook extensive uh, due diligence on both the intellectual property and, and the results that we've seen to date, and also what our plans are for the next um, next two to three years uh, and thereafter. And the way that, that Breakthrough Energy look at this investment and, and our other shareholders as well is... This is the first step on a, on a journey that they'll be with us right through and continue to support the group. So at the end of that journey, um, the numbers start getting uh, much more material and and they obviously continue to help us uh, and guide us through that process with, so, with all their experience.
7: So you've had that a guarantee that uh, this is only the start of the investment from Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy Ventures?
9: Look, subject to us meeting our... Our goals, obviously, and 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 our business plan. Then uh, it's always about um, the journey and the, the total investment. Because, as you rightly pointed out at the beginning, it's it's a relatively small amount of money right now. But but obviously, the the objective from them as an investor is is to put much more money into the group. And obviously, from our perspective, that um, provides the ongoing support, but um, but also the capability to to expand globally and we need companies like this or investors like this and also all the, the partners, of course, within Breakthrough who um, who who bring an enormous amount of experience, expertise, being some of the most successful people in the world.
7: The other notable investor is uh, Andrew and Nicola Forrest's Harvest Road business. Uh, how much is, has Harvest Road invested in the technology, David?
9: Look, Harvest Road uh, have just come in alongside... Breakthrough Energy, and again, they saw our technology and the ability to work closely with with their agriculture business as being really important to them. But um, I guess, a bit like Breakthrough, we don't specifically disclose the uh, the amounts. That um, individual groups put in.
7: Can you give us an idea of the your plans progressing towards you know reaching production? Uh, as you said earlier, this kind of investment speeds things up a little bit. Can you give us an idea of the trials that are going on and that path that you're on to productivity?
9: Yeah. So as I mentioned, there's a there's a, a large number of of animal trials which um, are, are currently going on, and and there's a number more. Uh, I think during the course of the next 12 months, we total about 12 in in four different countries, Um, and that's part of the ongoing development with various formulations as well as commencing data for the respective registration programs, uh, which differ slightly in each jurisdiction. In parallel to that, we are building a pilot production plant, and by the second half of this year, we hope to be producing Thousands of doses per day, so not millions, but certainly tens of thousands of doses per day. And within two years, our objective is to to turn that into um, millions of doses per day.
0: David Messina is the CEO of Ruminate. He was speaking with Belinda Varischetti. So that company is uh, working on a pharmaceutical product which it claims will drastically reduce methane emissions from livestock and Bill Gates... His company, well, his breakthrough energy venture has backed it. It's four minutes to one.
9: The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
0: Australian Manuka honey producers have scored a significant win against a group of New Zealand producers who want exclusive use of the word Manuka. The New Zealand-based Manuka Honey Appellation Society withdrew its appeals it launched in the UK and Europe after losing trademark cases to Australia. The Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Calendar told Clint Jasper it means Australian producers are now free to sell Manuka honey in those markets.
2: Well, number one, it's the uh, right decision on their behalf. And they should have done it a long time ago uh, and saved themselves a lot of money and pain but it means to our industry that you know the the industry from our perspective is now significantly de-risked we were being asked by um, partners and distributors around the world you know what's the situation with New Zealand and obviously we'll be now sharing this outcome with the world through all of our members and channels Uh, so it's a very very significant uh, outcome for us and We wish we hadn't had to go through it, but that's what happened.
3: Can you update at all on the other matters that are happening around the world?
2: Well, the only other one that was alive was was with Europe. They've also um, stopped uh, pursuing the trademark name in Europe. And the only outstanding one now is uh, the IPO office in New Zealand, which we're waiting for a decision on um you know and hopefully it's been a year now so hopefully there'll be a decision coming out of this soon and um we hope it's the right decision you know obviously for us it's a one-way trade with new zealand we can't sell any honey to new zealand uh but they sell an awful lot of honey over here so we hope it's the right decision but it's not a significant market for us
3: and are you hoping what's taken place in the UK and EU, they are different jurisdictions, but you know, if the weight of your argument has carried in those uh, courts, that it might uh, influence New Zealand's actions in any other future disputes it might have decided to take against Australia and other countries?
2: Oh, they, they are independent jurisdictions so we we've, we don't know for sure if um, you know these decisions in the UK and Europe will have any bearing at all on uh, on what New Zealand uh, does uh, we just hope it's a rational conversation obviously we've been asking for collaboration with New Zealand for many years and that's been uh, turned down at every time so um, perhaps these outcomes will change their thinking a little bit
3: Manuka has always been an extremely valuable product, both domestically and in export markets, especially around uh, Southeastern and Eastern Asia. Can you give us an idea of the size of this market?
2: Yeah, Clint, it's very hard to um, put a dollar number on it. But, you know, the forecast for the general market for Manuka honey is about $1.2 billion by 2027. Now, when you break that down or try to break it down into things like medical products or uh, prebiotics or um, creams, eczema, acne or other throat lozenges, you know, throat sprays, things like that, it's very diff- difficult to get a, an exact handle on the, the number. But um, certainly all of the health benefits of the honey are well known globally and a lot of value-added products are now coming to market besides just the honey in the jar. And while Asia has been a big market for Manuka in the past, uh, the US is obviously picking up and Europe's been a reasonable market and the UK for the honey has been a large market for a long time.
0: The Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Calendar speaking with Clint Jasper about a win for Australian producers in the use of the word Manuka. I'll be back with you after the news. It's one o'clock.
11: Hi, Stanton, your local dirt doctor or soil doctor, carrying out some uh, erosion control works on the station at this given moment. And guess what? You're listening to
2: Country Hour.
0: Good afternoon, Michelle Stanley with you on the Country Hour. It's five past one. Now the sequins and the boots, they were out in force at the weekend with the annual Golden Guitar Awards. For
2: the star the show. Tiggy
5: was playing this riff over and over again in the lounge room when she was about six or something, and we loved it. We were going, wow, this is awesome. Can we steal it? <laughs>
0: They did steal it and they won an award for it. You'll hear about it at when I take you to the Golden Guitar Awards before half past one this afternoon. First, though, let's check in with the Bureau of Meteorology. Rebecca Patrick is with you today. Hello. Hello, Michelle. How have we gone with rainfall over the weekend? Um, yeah, hasn't
4: been a whole lot of rain across the weekend, Um Gove over in the northeast Arnhem Land has cocked a bit over the last 24 hours um, because we do have a low pressure system that's currently moving through the Arafura Sea and offshore from the the top end coast Um, so they've been getting fairly persistent rainfall through there 60 millimetres to 9am this morning and they've picked up another 30 millimetres or so since then so um, yes some pretty uh, reasonable rainfall over in the northeast and expecting that that will come a little bit further west over the next 24 hours. Okay so what's to
0: come generally over the the north over the next few days?
4: Uh, So, yeah, the next 24 to 48 hours is um, largely going to be uh, due to this low-pressure system. Um, So that's moving westwards. It'll probably be north of Coburg um, later today um, and then moving out into the Timor Sea tomorrow. Um, So expecting that. The rainfall that we're seeing over the um, northern parts of the Annam district today will make its way a bit further west. So we might, um, might see a little bit more of that around the Tiwi Islands and northern Daly, so Darwin area, um, later this evening and uh, into tomorrow as well. Um, so yeah, northern parts of the top end should expect um, some reasonable rainfall over the next day or two. Um, and yeah probably decent reasonable showers and storms developing uh, over southern parts of the Top End as well. Um, Apart from that we'll just get sort of afternoon showers and storms um, over the northern half of the Territory.
0: What about in the southern half of the Territory? Is it going to cool down anytime soon? Oh not not too soon Um, so pretty clear
4: across the south at the moment. Um, and, yeah, fairly warm temperatures expected. Um, Tennant Creek's already up to 36 degrees. Yulara's past 36 degrees already today. So, um, yeah, those temperatures getting up into the the high 30s and low 40s potentially for the next um, next several days. Um, so particularly through those uh, central parts so the Barclay District and the Tanami, um, the next day or two, and then um, spreading down into the southern districts from Wednesday as well. Um, so yeah, pretty hot conditions for the next few weeks, maybe some, um, expecting those showers and storms to uh, move a bit further south from Thursday after Friday, so um, yeah, that m- will help to reduce those temperatures a bit.
0: Okay, that will be a relief, no doubt. Um, now, you mentioned some rainfall over the next 24, 48 hours in the north monsoonal activity is that too far away? (laughs)
4: Yeah um, but yeah Anam people probably feeling a bit monsoonal at the moment but um, not technically the monsoon. Um, We are keeping an eye on what the MJO is doing so that's the Madden-Julian oscillation that Um, is often tied to um, the monsoon activity and that is expected to perhaps come back into our area in early February. Um, So that will be something we're keeping an eye
0: on. Okay. Uh, And uh, lastly, we have had a text in on 0487991057. Uh, Ged has asked, when the Bureau of Meteorology says a river is X metres high, where is that measured from?
4: Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. Um, I think it's—I don't know if it's definitely, but I think it's the bottom of the river. So um, basically, they put a stick in the in the ground, and whatever that reading is is what your height is. Um, yeah. So when it's yeah, it can be very variable depending on which river you're looking at. Yeah,
0: cuz this take is that it would maybe make more sense to locals at least to say how far above or below their local bridge the river is, but I guess then that kind of changes on each bridge and how high the bridge is, so it maybe not, you know, the most accurate reading for someone to say oh it's a meter below the Catherine bridge as opposed to it's 14 meters high.
4: Yeah. Um so we do have flood levels for a number of our our main areas um, that are that are called minor, um, moderate and major levels and that will um, depend on the impact to the surrounding area. Um, so obviously if you've got a high bridge, you could still get, you know, flooding um, through areas that are, you know, adjacent to the bridge, I guess, um, and still have some flooding. So uh, yeah, I guess there's different... Uh, different levels of flooding and um, whether the, the bridge will be
0: impacted or not. Rebecca, thank you for that. No worries, thanks Michelle Rebecca Patrick from the Bureau of Meteorology. I hope that answered your question jed zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven If you would like to get in touch with the country hour this afternoon it 's twelve minutes past one and there 's also been a text from Di earlier this afternoon. We were chatting about the fracking inquiry, the pepper inquiry into fracking, and Di uh, says that she heard the item about the gas industry 's proposed carbon capture offset for all the greenhouse gas emissions and she thinks it's simply unbelievable. It won't convince the people of the Northern Territory and it won't convince the scientists. Daya says we are not fools. If you'd like to listen back to that story, you can. You can check out the podcast a little bit after the show uh, and just search for NT Country Hour or you can go online and read that story on the ABC Rural website. It's 13 past one.
3: Hi, it's James Finlay. I can't
5: wait to bring you a brand new show this year. This show will be full of fun, fascinating stories, intriguing discoveries, and it'll have one very special component: you. Afternoons in 2023 are going to be great. So I'll see you from the 30th of January from 1:30 for afternoons on ABC Radio
9: Darwin and the Northern Territory. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, Darwin and the Northern Territory.
0: Ag machinery company John Deere is planning to launch electric tractors in Australia in just three years. They'll start with smaller units suitable for the Hort sector and some will be driverless as well. David Claughton spoke about the rollout with the company's Australia and New Zealand production system manager, Steph Jezakoski.
1: So in June last year, we announced um, our electrification strategy as part of our 2026 LEAP ambitions. And under that strategy, um, we announced that we plan to deliver an electric option in each of our turf and compact utility tractor portfolios, um, as well as an autonomous battery electric powered ag tractor by 2026.
12: So it's not just one model. There'll be several, will there?
1: uh yes so the battery electric ag tractor is um currently the project i'm most involved with but our intention is to offer at least one model across our turf and compact utility portfolio so so so, be, so it's the kind
12: of thing that will be used on a turf farm
1: yeah correct um so typically we see our compact tractors used across a range of applications um acreage lifestyle properties as well as hoard and turf applications
12: and what would it be doing? Cutting grass or would there be other
1: applications? Uh, It Could be a range of applications, anything from spraying to mowing um, and other maintenance tasks. Obviously horticulture customers, when we're talking about row width and limitations, they're, um, they're limited in terms of how they can get those productivity gains. They can't just put a bigger machine in that space. So we feel a battery electric solution will work really well in terms of delivering um, greater efficiencies and the technology uh, to support productivity um, without having to compromise on size.
12: Will they look different?
1: Uh, Yes, they will look somewhat different, but not too different to what you know today.
12: What would the difference be?
1: Um, I think you will notice just the difference in that machine form. Obviously, we won't have a traditional diesel engine in these ones. So um, you can expect just some design changes there. Smaller? Effectively, yes. We'll be able to make them. And if we circle back to the application they're intended for, it's horticulture, right? So making sure that they can fit within rows is really important to us. So you can anticipate um, the being slightly more narrow and a little bit smaller.
12: For those people who are thinking tractors in agriculture big machines broadacre type stuff harvesting crops when, when is that when do you like to see an electric monster come coming out
1: look i think when we go into those higher horsepower requirements um battery electric does have its limitations so I think, you know, we've got a real opportunity when we're looking at horticulture, you know, any application between that 90 and 130 horsepower range to have a fully battery electric solution. When we start to go into those higher horsepower ranges, you know, I think the opportunity there still is around the diesel technology as well as other more sustainable options um, like biofuels and um, hybrid options.
12: But these, there, there is, I mean, this question about power and electric Machines In in the car industry, we're seeing that sometimes, uh, and even tracks, uh, Janice are, are converting diesel trucks to electric and saying that they'd be some of the most powerful trucks in Australia. So what are you seeing in terms of the power of, of those smaller tractors that you're about to put out?
1: Yeah, what we expect from battery electric is more efficient um, technology and efficiencies in terms of, I guess, the power to the ground. So... Um, From an application and ability to perform, we have no concerns from that perspective.
12: Right. And, uh, of course, the big issue for farmers is charging batteries. What do you have to change on farm to be able to run an electric tractor?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really relevant question. When we announced the strategy last year, I spoke around the importance of the entire infrastructure and ecosystem that we would be looking to deliver and that's something we're really mindful of we can't just put a battery electric tractor on farm and wish our customers all the best um, so really the way we're approaching it is through open communication and collaboration with utility providers and partners and um, we see that as being critical to the success so while I can't specifically share what will exactly be needed I guess I just want to reassure you know, those who are interested in this technology that we're working with those utility providers and partners to really understand what we need to deliver to make sure that this is feasible for our customers.
12: And people say that electric equipment is much easier or cheaper to service and maintain. But if you're jumping on board with an electric vehicle and, you know, all the usual service options aren't available to you because they're new, how is that, how do you think that's going to be for for early adopters? What are you thinking about servicing and maintenance?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess with um, battery electric technology, what you can expect to see is not only the machine being simpler, it's also down to the components as well. So we absolutely anticipate less maintenance and servicing um, and parts required to keep the machines running. Um, In terms of, I guess, the aftermarket support and service for our customers, this is something we're already proactively working um, to upskill and address with our dealer network to make sure that they're well prepared to service and support these machines for our customers.
0: That's Steph Jezakoski from John Deere. She was speaking with David Claughton. Rollout will start with a select group of farmers initially for these electric tractors and it'll happen at the same time as the US rollout. The cost of the electric tractors will be higher than conventional but the company expects the prices will come down and the cost over the life cycle of the machines will be lower when you account for lower running and uh, and repair costs. 19 past one. Not long now until the kids go back to school for the year. But if you're the one packing lunches, they might look a little bit different. Queensland bananas are expected to be delayed getting out of the state as a result of the recent floods. Rod McPherson is the CEO of Market West in Perth. He says you might not see the impact just yet, but it'll come.
11: The feedback I have from particularly one of our suppliers of Queensland bananas, one of our wholesalers, he expects the effect to um, be delayed somewhat because quite a bit of produce is already on the road. So that will arrive over the next few days. So the real effect won't kick in for a week or so, depending on how long it takes to um, re-establish access from that area of Queensland. To the southern states.
5: And Rod, from your experience, what effects do these delays have here in Western Australia?
11: Well, obviously, bananas are a a popular uh, consumable fruit, particularly for families and kids. So, what it's going to do is it's a good thing for locally produced bananas, particularly out of Carnarvon, but it will obviously, uh, supply and demand will probably see either an increase in in, uh, the price to the consumer or the consumer Will source some alternatives, you know, the move away from bananas to other fruit and veg. So that's just a matter of supply and demand.
0: Rod McPherson speaking with Mark Foreman about the flow on effects of the flooding in Queensland. If you want to find out more about that story, uh, you can read more online. Just type ABC Rural Bananas into your search engine. It's 21 past one. We've been talking a little about the Golden Guitar Awards and very shortly I'll take you there to get a full wrap of all the action. But I'm going to play you now the winner of Bush Ballad of the Year, Dean Perrett. It's called Out on Kalani. <laughs> Dean Perrett with the Bush Ballad of the Year. It's called Out on Killarney and it took home a golden guitar over the weekend. And yeah, the boots, the sparkles, the sequins, they were out in full force in Tamworth with the town's annual country music festival coming to a close. The Golden Guitar Awards were back to normal after two years of pandemic affected shows and the musos were ready to celebrate. Caitlin Furlong. Caitlin Furlong took a look back at the country music industry's Night of Nights.
13: Award show host Travis Collins opened proceedings with a live performance of his song One of Them Nights. Brooke McClymont and Adam Eckersley were the first winners to take the stage for Single of the Year for Memory Lane. It wouldn't be the last time the husband and wife duo took the stage that night. Cause
2: I wake up first in the morning. I even be the early birds calling when the sun shines so bright like a spotlight.
13: performed star of the show for the crowd and shared a special moment with everyone.
2: This is our
7: 10-year-old daughter Tiggy Eckersley. everybody. She wrote this song. We are so proud of her.
13: Tiggy went on to join her parents and friend Dan Biederman in winning the Golden Guitar for Song of the Year. Tiggy
9: was a just oh, yeah. Playing this
5: riff over and over again in the lounge room when she was about six or something, and we loved it. We were going, wow, this is awesome.
3: Can we steal it? (laughs) But I also said, we'll put you on the song, darling. Do you mind if we write a song about you in this? If we can use it, you'll get paid. Well,
5: before that, Arizona Dan, who's always been awesome with Tiggs and the piano, was at our house to write a song one day and and asked how's T going on piano. We said, "Darling, come and show Arizona Dan that riff you've been playing." And, and Dan just looked at us and said, "We're going to be writing this song." T-
2: so there we had to. She would have this. to be the youngest to win a golden guitar, right? She legit wrote this song. Congratulations. <laughs> you, want to say <laughs> you, you, you just you. can you you tiptoe? Do you want to talk, darling? Do you want to say anything? Just like. What <laughs>
3: What do you want to say, baby girl? Thank you. <laughs> yes!
13: Kim Cheshire took out alt Country Album of the Year for Looks Like Heaven.
6: I want to thank my mum and dad,
5: George and Beryl Wright, without whose discouragement in my youth, I would never have been so determined. <laughs> So thanks, Mum and Dad. They're long gone now, but uh, I love them dearly.
13: Casey Barnes took out Album of the Year, while Amber Lawrence and Andrew Swift were named Female and Male Talent of the Year. Best New Talent, James Johnston, closed the show.
0: Small Town by Best New Talent James Johnston closing the Golden Guitar, Guitar Awards in Tamworth on Saturday night. And thank you to Caitlin Furlong. For that report, plenty of awards. Casey Barnes won the Album of the Year with "Light It Up." Uh, you heard Kim Cheshire won the Alt Country Album of the Year for "Looks Like Heaven." Uh, who else do we have? The Female Artist of the Year was Amber Lawrence. Male Artist was Andrew Swift. And Heritage Song of the Year, as well as the Video of the Year, went to Lou Cochet for "Southeast Queensland." And a special shout out to Territorian Tom Curtin, who was inducted into the Hands of Fame, which recognises people for their contribution to the Australian country music industry. He put his handprint into some concrete in Tamworth for the Hands of Fame. And if you are keen to hear more about that, Tom Curtin will be speaking with Liz Travaskis on the Drive program after four this afternoon. That is it from me for the Country Hour today. If you want to tune back into the podcast, you can just search NT Rural or NT Country Hour. You should be able to find that later this afternoon and I'll catch you tomorrow. It's half past one.